0: Hey Parkview, welcome. Happy Independence Weekend. Uh, I'm not here because I want to be ready to rock and roll with Remission. It starts Tuesday night in Indianapolis. I hope you'll still come. I hope you'll be praying for us. I preach on Tuesday night and then uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning, this convention is going on. Uh, my, my good buddy Dave Stone is here. Uh, he, he volunteered. He's like, you know what, dude, I, I want to help your staff get prepared for it. I want to go pump your people up. I, he's, he's that kind of a friend for me. We take, you know, this weekend off from his family and his church, a church of 22,000 in, in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the country. And, and he would come and he would preach for us. And, uh, and he's doing that kind of partially because he's got to be the president in two years, in 2016. So uh, he knows all. Uh, I'll do him some favors on the way back around. Uh, but Dave's one of my favorite, one of my favorite friends, lifelong friends. Dave, Dave's parents and my parents went to college together. Dave's dad and my dad went to high school together in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've known each other that long. Um, he's that close of a friend. Great communicator. If you've heard him before, you know that already. So I'll shut up so you can listen to Dave. Everybody, at Parkview, please welcome my friend Dave Stone.
1: Hello. Well, I am honored to be here with you all, and I, I always look forward to this. And it's, it, the music was great today. Wasn't that music awesome? I mean, man alive. I, I get asked to speak a lot of places. I've never been asked to sing anywhere in my life, you know. Uh, I take that back. My parents used to ask me to sing two hymns, uh, Softly and Tenderly, On a Hill Far Away. Uh, Gives you some idea what my voice is like, but uh, I, I loved. I got to hear him last night, and again this morning, and, and next hour. And I, I do wish that Tim was here, but he is not here because of all that he has going on this week. And whether you realize it or not, this is uh, about the highest honor that someone could could get within the Christian churches, and also the largest responsibility. And that is being the president of the North American Christian Convention. And he's been planning on this for for two years and and working hard. And there's so many of you all who have been involved in it. And uh, so pray for Tim. Pray for Denise this week. It will be a great week for Parkview to shine in Indianapolis, but also all around the country and all around the world because there will be people there from, from numerous countries. If you have a free day... When you get a chance to slide down to Indianapolis, Tim will be preaching on Tuesday night uh, there. And uh, even if you got another day that you can come down, uh, there'll be a lot of great things that are taking place. I know he'd appreciate uh, your attendance and your support, but more importantly than that, I, I know that they would appreciate your prayers. And uh, you all are very blessed and fortunate to, to have the Harlows, and I know they feel the same way uh, about you all as, as well. Now, I've been coming to Parkview for over 10 years, and... Um, I, I love it here because you all are so kind to me, and, and you listen really well, and I never know what's going to happen. You know, the very first time I ever came to Chicagoland wasn't to speak at Parkview. I actually came for a job interview, and I was interviewing with a church that was looking for an assistant pastor. And so I was kind of excited about it, and when I showed up, I found that there were five of us that were there for that role, and the pastor would not even come out of his, his office. He would just kind of bark and and say, next, for whoever the person was that was coming for the interview. And so the five of us are seated out there in this hallway, uh, not too far from here, about a half an hour away from here. And sure enough, the first guy went in. He'd been in there for about 10 seconds. And all of a sudden, you hear this loud screaming, get out of here. I can't believe you said that about me. You got a lot of nerve. The guy say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He went walking out. Well, this same scene kept replaying time after time. Finally, it got down to the fourth guy. The fourth guy went in. Same thing. Pastor screaming his head off, I'm offended by you. I can't believe you said that. Get out of here. Guy went walking out. I'm sorry, sir. I'm really sorry. As he went walking past me, he looked at me. He said, Dave, he said, whatever you do, don't say anything about the guy's ears. I said, okay, I won't. I won't. So sure enough, the guy barked and said, next. Next. I went walking in. As I shook hands with the man, I glanced up, and I realized the guy didn't have any ears. He said, what's the first thing that you notice about me? I said, well, you wear contact lenses. (laughs) He said, that's unbelievable. He said, I have never in all my life met anyone who is so perceptive and so observant. He said, how in the world could you tell? I said, it's easy. You don't have any ears. If you had glasses, they'd fall off. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. He did not think it was that funny. Uh, And I didn't get that job. Shocking, right? Uh, Last night, I'm telling you, every time I come to Parkview, something happens. Either you're in a different building. Every time I come, well, we built another building. Why? Well, we've added another service. Why? Oh, we've, we've got six services now. We've got this going on. Oh, we met outside last week. You know, all these different things. Last night, no lie, I'm in the middle of my sermon. I'm two minutes into my sermon, and all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off in here, and that fire alarm is loud. It's more obnoxious than any teacher you've ever had, and I mean, it was just blaring every five seconds, so we all got up in the middle of my sermon, and I'm, I'm accustomed to people walking out when I preach, you know, <laughs> so it didn't really throw me off, and then finally somebody pulled me out and said, hey, you can come out too, and I was still preaching, you know, uh, <laughs> But we went outside. We had a great time out there for about 10 or 15 minutes. Got to meet a lot of uh, Orland Park's uh, finest fire firemen. It was great. And uh, I started taking pictures and video of everything taking place and sending it to Tim Harlow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I was having a blast with it. And after about the third picture, I said, you know, why in the world did the fire alarm go off at your place? And he said, I told you not to bring your smoking hot wife with you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So we're safe this hour. She's coming next hour, but uh, we might have problems then. But uh, I don't know if you take notes on sermons, uh, and I'm not asking you to do that, but I am asking you to listen for one line today. I don't know what the line will be, but, but God is going to lay one line on your heart. It will be different for every one of you. And uh, if you have Twitter, I'm going to ask you to tweet it to me. Uh, my address is real easy. It's Dave Stone, 920 And uh, if you if you don't have social media or Twitter, uh, then just catch me. I hang out right out here in your lobby afterwards. And last night I just had a line of people just walk by, and they just told me the line that God said to them. It might be a line that I say. It might be something that God impresses upon you. But I just want to ask you to have ears to listen for that, and to jot that down because it will be a very personal message. And if you tweet it to me, it's a kind of a form of accountability of saying that this is what you're going to embrace, this truth that comes from God's Word. Now, my title today is A Fresh Start. And the reason I chose A Fresh Start, you may not realize it or not, but we are at the halfway point of the year. It was six months ago this week that you made a lot of New Year's resolutions. Now, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing on those resolutions. Typically, when we do resolutions, you know, they they typically deal with our, our physical being. Isn't that right? You know, we're going to exercise more. We're going to change our diet. A few weeks ago, we had a, a gal who called up our sports and fitness department, and she wanted information about our aerobics classes. And she said, uh, yeah, how do I sign up for the aerobics class? And, and the uh, assistant said, uh, just come to uh, the sports and fitness area. Be there at 9 o'clock. Bring $10 and wear loose-fitting clothing. And there was this pause, and the lady said, If I had any loose-fitting clothing, I wouldn't be signing up for the aerobics class, right? Well, that's kind of how it is. We all have things that we're working on. We're, We're all a work in progress, whether those goals are physical goals, whether they are dietary, whether they're career goals, or whether they're spiritual goals. And when I think about a fresh start and being at that halfway point, I have to think, okay, what is it, what passage of Scripture might speak to this? Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. And Philippians 3 is a passage that that you'll be familiar with, and we're going to put it on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. But I I love this passage. Verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is, is writing, and he says this. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. "...becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus." forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I've talked to so many people who are in a transition right now. I talked to people last night who are thinking about switching colleges and going to another one. I talked to a gal last evening that's looking for a house. He's about to move to the Atlanta area. And we all find ourselves in different transitions. And some are tougher than others. And I'm not sure what type of change it is that you might be encountering. But I am certain that there is something in your work life or in your family life or in your serving life. There's some, there's some type of transition that might need a fresh start. So I'm going to give you three different areas. And you might say, wow, that one doesn't apply to me or that one doesn't apply to me. But I'll bet you one of the three will. Okay. Number one. Maybe what you need is a fresh start with the church. You ever felt burned by the church? Maybe you're visiting here today because you had a bad experience with church. Maybe you felt ostracized in a place where you should have felt accepted. Maybe you felt like everyone knew your business, and you're just kind of looking for some place to call home. Maybe you had a bad experience when, when you were much younger with the church, and as a result of that, it it has jaded your view, and so you haven't gone to church, and now you're starting to inch your way back into it. Maybe you need a fresh start with the church. You know, even within the church, we can be honest here, there are some people who can always bring you down. Have you ever noticed that? It shouldn't be that way. I think the church should be a place of joy. You should come across the most joyful people in all the world. Why? Because they have their, their future settled and their, their past forgiven. And if you have Christ as the Lord of your life, you should have more joy than anyone else. But sometimes when I'm at church, you know, it, it reminds me, have you ever, did you ever watch Flintstones? How many of y'all, remember are in Flintstones, okay? There was a very, he's no relation to me, all right? Um, there was a very obscure character that some of you will remember, and his name was Schlepprock. And Schlepprock, everywhere he went, he had an umbrella over the top of his head. And there was always a rainstorm. And he walked around. You remember him everywhere he went. It was all doom and gloom. Wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo. Remember Schlapprock? Okay. Everything was like that. Sometimes when I go to my church and I walk around, every hey, how are you? Hey, good to see you. How's it going? Been praying for you. And then I come across a Schlapprock. Hey, how are you doing? You doing okay? Wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo. The fire alarm went off last night at church. We had a great time outside. The fire line went off. The sermon was shorter. You know, I'm looking for all these good things. <laughs> but there are those schlep rocks. I, I love the Christian T-shirt that says, if you have Jesus in your heart, please notify your face. You know? <laughs> and we should, right? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit for a reason, Paul challenged the church in Thessalonica to, to do the very same thing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. And sometimes encouraging words, they come from someone that you pass in the parking lot or you pass a church, and it's amazing how just a phrase or something can just lift your spirits. Or for someone to ask you something about something that took place a couple of weeks ago. And you're like, oh, wow, you remembered. Or, yeah, well, you asked me to pray for you. Yeah, I prayed for you. And it's amazing how that just lifts their, their spirits. Sometimes the encouragement comes from a total stranger, someone that you would never expect. But more times than not, the people who need our encouragement are the very people who we love the most and, and we're around the most. That's our family. You know, we're quick with our compliments to our co-workers and and fellow students and, and those that we work out with. But when it comes to actually saying something nice and encouraging those that we love the most, sometimes we, we don't always do that. Zig Ziglar was probably the top salesperson in the country in the 1960s and 70s. But that launched a public speaking career, and he was a tremendous motivational speaker. He also was a Christian, a uh, committed Christian. He taught a Sunday school class every week in, in Dallas, Texas at his church but Zig Ziglar, uh, one time I got to hear him speak, and he shared the story of how he tried to get his wife and his son involved in playing golf. And he said, i make no bones about it. I had very ulterior motives. He said, I, I was trying to get them involved because I thought if I could get them hooked on golf, then I would get to play more golf. So he said, for Christmas one year, I, I bought my wife and my son each their very own set of golf clubs. And he said, I thought, I'm going to get to play a whole lot more. Well, they went out and they played with me every once in a while. But after a few months, they kind of lost interest. And they said, you know what? Hey, Dad, you, you go play. We're, we're really not into it. And so he lost his golfing partners. But he said, one day, a number of months later, he was driving down the road. His son was seated beside him. And his son said, Dad, he said, do you have my set of golf clubs in your trunk with yours? He said, I sure do. He said, look, there's a public golf course right there. Let's go play nine holes. Well, Zig Ziglar, this was music to his ears. He said, I was in immediately. He said, so we whipped the car in there. We went in. We started playing golf. And after a few holes, he said, you have to understand, I've been playing for years. And and Ziglar was a pretty accomplished golfer. But his son was quite mediocre because he hadn't played much. But he said, my son was on a par four in the middle of the green in two shots. And he was putting for the very first birdie of his life. He said, I got down on the ground. He said, "I, I lined that putt up. I told him how far it was going to break, how hard to hit it, you know where it was going to go. And he said, as my son was getting ready to hit that putt, he said, the whole time I was just praying, Lord, just one time, one time, throw him bone, just let that, that putt fall in the hole. And he said, his son struck the putt, and on the last turn on the sideways door, it fell in for a birdie. He said, we went crazy. He said, we hooted and hollered. We danced around that entire green. He said, we high fives. He said, everybody on the entire course knew that my son had just got the first birdie of his entire life. But he said, then I looked and he said, I realized and remembered that I had a birdie putt myself. And that my putt was much closer and much more makeable. Zig Ziglar says, I stood over that putt and I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just, I'll just push it outside about an inch and I'll miss it intentionally and that way I won't rain on my son's parade and he can have the only birdie on this hole. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized that goes against everything that he had ever taught his son. He'd always taught his son to do his best and so he stood over the top of the putt and he tried to make it and he struck the putt and he struck it well and it fell in the dead center of the cup for another birdie and his son looked at him and said, "Nice, nice putt, dad, way to go, you got a birdie. He said thanks and he put the flag back in the hole and as they started walking to the next tee box Zig Ziglar said I stopped and I put my hand around my son's shoulder he said I got a question for you son he said what's the question he said were you rooting for me he said his son looked him in the eyes and he said hey dad I always root for you do you have somebody like that in your family You have somebody like that in your workplace who always has your back, who will do whatever it takes to encourage you, regardless of how down or depressed or discouraged you might get, they will always be in your corner. That's the way the church should be. That's the way these brothers and sisters in this family should be on your behalf, where they lift you up before the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When you come into church... When you walk into Parkview, do you come in with a rake or do you come in with a pitchfork? You say, well, what do you mean by that, Dave? Well, by a rake, I mean that you come to gather, you come to glean, you want to take away everything that God has for you. You want to get into the worship, you want to get involved in serving and giving and listening and encouraging. That person comes in with a rake, but there are others who, when they walk into a church, they come in with a pitchfork and they poke, and they prod, and they stir things up. Which is it for you? You see, if you really want a fresh start with the church, then you have to say, I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to do all that I possibly can to make this like a family, a healthy family of a body of believers. So maybe as you enter the second half of the year, you can have a fresh start with the church. But maybe that's not the area for you. Okay? Maybe what you need is, secondly, a fresh start with others. I wonder if God might have one line to lay on your heart in this section. You know, in the coming weeks, summer will give way and fall will begin and we establish new patterns of behavior and our schedules change and kids go back to school and they find themselves in social settings where the caste system can be brutal to those who aren't in a group or they're not in a clique and so teens and college students who are listening to me, when you walk into that cafeteria, you'd be on the lookout for that person who is all by himself. You'd be on the lookout for that person who's new. And adults, is there somebody in a nearby cubicle or a nearby office who could use some encouragement? Is there a neighbor who could use an invitation to be a, a part of a, of a life group in your home? Is there someone you can help in the community? Is there someone new to the community who has kids that you could have come over for a cookout? Now, I realize that there are some people in this world who are really tough to live with. You know people like that? They're really tough to live with, right? Please don't point at them if they're in your robe, all right? Just just nod, all right? Uh, Someone said, to live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with ones we know, oh, that's another story, you know? So what we have to do is we have to say, okay, how is it that we can be distinctive? How is it that we can stand out in this world, in our relationship with others? And Jesus Christ made it very clear in his expectation for us of how it is that we are to interact with others. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, you know this passage of Scripture. Jesus says, a new command I give you, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Get this by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that means that love would be the distinctive characteristic. That would be what what makes you stand out from everyone else in the world. It's the way you love, it's the the way you genuinely care for others. It's because of that way that that they sense that there is something different and distinctive about you. You are a Christ follower. And it's because of the attention that you give to those who are neglected and overlooked. You know, sometimes I think we lose our faith in humanity, and we are surprised at just how apathetic or indifferent people can be to our situation or to our plight. Uh, several months ago, I was uh, preaching out on the West Coast, and it was one of those days it was just a comedy of airs. My flights were late, they continued to be delayed. Uh, The last long flight that I had to get to the West Coast, uh, I didn't have Wi-Fi, and I was going to book my hotels online. I got to San Francisco. My phone was dead. I mean, it was one thing after another. So I drove to in between where there were two hotels, and I parked my car, and I thought, you know what, I'll just uh, walk to one, I'll park in the middle, I'll walk to the other one, and I'll find out uh, which one has a cheaper price for a hotel didn't think a whole lot about it, found a parking spot, walked to one hotel, got the price, walked back. As I was walking past my car to go to the other hotel, I looked, and I saw a bunch of glass right there next to my car. And I thought, oh, man, I hadn't seen that when I backed in that parking spot. I better be careful because I don't want to run over that glass. But then I looked a little more closely, and I realized where the glass had come from. And the rental car that I had, someone had punched a hole through the passenger window, and I walked up and I saw that my backpack that had been on the floorboard of my front seat was, was totally gone. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, that has all my contact information of where I'm preaching. It has all the phone numbers. Uh, it has my laptop computer in it. It has my Bible in it. And it has some different things in there. Oh, yeah. And it has my iPhone in it. And because I have a bony butt, I had taken my wallet out. And I had my wallet in there. So I had everything in there. I'm trying to get somebody to let me use their phone, call the police station. Finally, I called the police station. They said, we'll be there in 45 minutes. I said, you know, I don't think I want to hang out here for 45 minutes. And I said, tell me where you all are, and I'll find the police station. So I go to the police station. I come walking in, got the little glass window thing there. And I said, hey, I'm the guy that you talked to on the phone. And, and I said, hey, you know, I've got all this stuff stolen. My wallet was stolen. Uh, and I said, could I use your phone before we fill out the report, so that I can call my wife and she can start closing out credit cards. And he said, Oh, no. I said, you, you can't use our phone. That goes against our policy. And I said, Well, I mean, if I were a criminal, you'd give me one phone call. <laughs> and he didn't laugh. And uh, that kind of set the tone for the next hour right there. And uh, sure enough, I said, Well, you know what? I said, Do you mind? Uh, is there a payphone outside somewhere? He said, Oh, yeah, there's a payphone just right across the street. And I, and I said, well, I think I'll go over there. He said, oh, no, you can't use that payphone. I said, why not? He said, it's too dangerous. He said, this is a really dangerous neighborhood, and you can't, you can't go over there and use that. So I'm like, I'm 30 feet away from the police station. No, no, you can't use it. So it continued to uh, go on and on like that. And I spent an hour with them filling out reports. A day and a half later, the police got word to me, and they said, a garbage man in San Francisco found your backpack and yeah, your laptop's gone and most everything else, but your driver's license is in there and a few other things. And I said, Well that's great. I'll never be able to fly home if I don't have my driver's license. So uh, I drove to the police station to pick this up. I went walking in the San Francisco police department and said, Hey, yeah, I'm here to pick up my backpack. The man says, Can I see some ID? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, right? You know? I said, well, actually, I said, uh, my ID is actually in the backpack, and that's what they called and told me. He said, well, can you verify who you are somehow? And I said, well, I think there are four sermons that are in that backpack, and believe me, I am the only person who would drive an hour to, to get my own sermons back. So he's like, yeah, okay, all right. So he checked it out and gave me back the backpack, and I started going through the backpack, and it was really strange because my sermons were still in there, evidently not a lot of resale value for those. <laughs> uh, and then my Bible, my Bible was in there. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to make too big of a deal about but, I mean, I was really overcome when I saw, saw that Bible. And... Um, and there was a driver's license in there, and my credit cards were actually still in there. He'd taken out all the cash and iPhone and laptops and, and all that stuff. But to add insult to injury, the dude, when he punched the window in, he got his hand bleeding, and so all of my stuff, he, he bled all over my stuff. He got his blood all over everything I had in there. So I have all these little reminders of this this guy who has done that, and I tried to think in the days to come, what was it that God was trying to teach me? And, and I think I finally landed on this. Uh, I found it quite fitting that God removed my technology, but he returned my Bible to me. And it was as if he was communicating to me, my word is more important than your iPhone. And uh, I was in the middle of working on some sermons with a friend of mine for three days, and I'm like, Lord, I really need my laptop. And it was like God was saying, my, my word is more important than your laptop or than your sermons. Uh, I didn't have a phone for five days, and I went without posting a tweet or posting a picture on Instagram, and somehow the social media world survived, you know? <laughs> but when I completed the police report, That first night with the officer, remember through the glass window? The next thing that that he said was, he said, for insurance purposes, you now need to make a list with me of all the things that you had in there. I said, oh man, that backpack weighed 30 pounds. I said, there's so many different things. I can't remember. He said, just try to remember everything you can. So I said, okay, laptop. He said, okay, what's the value? I told him the value and he wrote it down. I said, iPhone. He said, what's the value? I said, earbuds. I said, what's the value? And he said, uh, what else? I said, I bought a book in the Atlanta airport, a book. Okay, what's the value? Then I said, Bible. And he said, what's the value? And I said, priceless. How would you put a price tag on your Bible? I mean, you could buy one for 20, 25 bucks, but if it's your Bible... You can't put a price tag on that. It's got your notes in the margin. It's got the little things. It helps you find things that that you know where they are just because it's your Bible. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, The grass withers, the flowers fail, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And I just wonder if... Is this might be a time of resolution for you? Are there some habits that you need to form with your quiet time that could help you with your relationship with God and your relationship with others? I mean, it's really tough to be right with others if you aren't in a right relationship with the Lord. And if you have a fresh start relationally with others, you have to say, are there some face-to-face conversations that I need to have? Or do I need to hibernate the laptop and turn off the phone? Are there some lonely people that I need to listen to? Are there some people that could use some laughter? Is there someone I could reach out to? Is there a fresh start that you need to make with the church or with others? Or maybe it's in the third area, a fresh start with the Lord. Maybe there's one line that God's going to say to you in, in this section that is just for you. And perhaps it's a time for a spiritual renewal as we enter the second half of the year. And, and maybe during the summer you've done some traveling or you're about to do some traveling or maybe life circumstances start to become a barrier to this weekly feeding time that you have of being encouraged by being with, with other Christians and believers. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, and let us consider... How we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I, I, I love standing out there after the service and just hearing your stories and meeting people who have joy and they love to come to worship. Why? Because they have a personal relationship with the Lord. They're on the same wavelength as the Lord. And coming to church affords you the chance to worship the Lord with people beside you, to get into God's word, to be challenged and strengthened spiritually. And I know some of you are saying, oh, Dave, you know what? I mean, I know the church thing, it sounds really good, but I feel so awkward when I come to church because I don't think I'm worthy of a fresh start. My past is too shady, my resolve is too shaky. I I meet and talk with people on a regular basis who are very far away from God. And there is nothing like hearing them share what it is that's taking place in their life or of the shame or the mistakes that they've made in the past and how it is that God God is drawing them closer to Him. I mean, that's the story of a church. Every, Every single row is filled with broken people. Every single seat is filled with people who have made incredible mistakes in life. The pulpit (laughs) has a man standing behind it that has disappointed God time and time again. And yet the message of the gospel rings true, that if he can't forgive the worst of sinners, then he can't forgive any sinner. And the good news is is that, that Christ can forgive all sinners God can stir and start a revival in your life. He can give you that new start. He can change you. But the height of your turnaround will be determined by the depth of your desperation. The height of your turnaround will be determined by the depth of your desperation. Is church just something that you do? Or is this really something where you're willing to dig deep and say, Okay, Lord, will you forgive me of this? Will you help me to have a fresh start? You see, it all comes back to Jesus. It's not about a church. It's not about a building. It's not about a leader. It's not about a preacher. It's not about a Bible study leader. It all comes back to Jesus. Last year, I was out of town playing golf. I don't get to play golf much anymore. And I play sometimes when I'm out of town. And whenever you play when you're out of town, you always get matched up with total strangers or people that you just don't know, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad. And Typically what happens, I'm playing with three total strangers, and and after about five or six holes, the conversation will turn to what everybody does for a living. And on this day, uh, they start asking that question. What's everybody do? Well, I do this. What do you do? I do that. What do you do? I do this. And they come to me. What do you do? I'm a preacher. (laughs) Oh, oh, (laughs) he's a preacher. Good. (laughs) And it's always fun because the next two holes, whenever they hit a bad shot, their language changes. You know, this guy slices one into the lake, and all of a sudden he goes, Oh, shucks. <laughs> shucks, where would that come from? Is this the same guy? You know. But this guy was consumed with wanting to find out how many people came to my church. And it's always a rather strange question, because I think that people have a, a stereotype of what a large church is like, like Parkview or, or Southeast And so I used to try to avoid that question just because I think people have misconceptions of of larger churches. And he kept asking, you know, how many people go to your church? And I just, well, you know, we we got a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, I'd always just kind of blow it off and and him haul around. Finally, at the end of the round, he came over to my cart. I'm sitting there with my cart mate. And and he says to me, he says, hey, how many people go to your church each weekend? And so I said, about 20,000 people. And he thought for a second and he said, Well, that's impossible. That's it. There's no way that you, as a pastor, can know all 20,000 people. And I said, Well, you're right. I can't, but Jesus can. And the guy in the cart next to me leaned over and said, And that's all that matters. <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah, what he said. <laughs> you know? But really, that is all that matters. I mean, right? There's no way for Tim Harlow to know six to 7,000 people. I can't know all the people in my church. But, but that's not what's important. Jesus knowing your name is much more important than your pastor knowing your name. See, when it comes to names, Satan knows you by your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows you by your sin, but he calls you by your name. And there's a huge difference. It all comes back to where your identity is found. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. He has a father who longs to have a relationship with you, with each and every one of you. About four years ago, my my older daughter moved to Dallas, and it was around the same time that my younger daughter went to college in Nashville. And uh, some of you can relate to the emotions of, of your two daughters leaving town and moving a long ways away. And, and I took my daughter, my younger one, to college. And if you're not emotional on that day because of your child leaving, then the cost of college tuition will make you cry, right? <laughs> but before I left her on that campus, I said, Sadie, I said, now, I, you need to stay here at the campus for at least two weekends, I know you're going to want to come see me. I know you're going to want to come home. I know you're going to miss me. You have got to stay for two weeks to get acclimated. She said, okay, I will. Well, two weeks came and went, and she stayed. I'm like, praise the Lord. But then three weeks came and went. And then four weeks. And then five weeks. And she still didn't drive the three hours back home. At five weeks and three days, I was going crazy. And I was dying, and I called my wife up, and she said, what are you doing today? I said, well, I actually just canceled all my appointments, and I am driving to Nashville. Please don't be mad at me, but I just missed Sadie. And and Sadie had been gone for five weeks and three days, and I said, I'm going down to see Sadie. And so I got down there, and uh, I tried to call her, and she wasn't answering her phone. So I called her roommate and said, do you know where? Oh, yeah, she's taking a nap in, in our room. And she said, you want me to go wake her up? I said, yeah. I said, tell her to look outside her dorm window. And here I am out on the lawn out there, all right? And I bought a bouquet of flowers on my way down there. So I'm standing out there, and all these college students are walking past, and I wish you could have seen the looks on the the guys' faces, because they're looking at me like, get somebody your own age, you know? (laughs) And I'm standing out there with the flowers, and finally... I see Sadie peer back from the window and she pulls the blinds back and she sticks her head out. It's kind of sunny out there and she locks in and she sees me with the flowers. And she waves and she sends me a text message and says, I'll meet you down in the lobby in three minutes. I'm going to throw some jeans on. And I went in that lobby and I sat there at this couch and I've got these flowers. And I'm right at the base where the steps come down. And I got to tell you, if I could somehow take you there with me, my heart was about to beat out of my chest. Because it had been five weeks and three days since I had seen her face. And I couldn't wait to be in that relationship with her. And I waited for what seemed like 10 or 12 minutes, but it probably was about two minutes. And finally, I hear this sound of feet coming down the steps, and I see her come into sight. She throws her arms out, jumps into my arms. I give her a hug. I tell you that story because your heavenly father longs to be in that relationship with you. And for some of you, it's been five days since you've talked to him or seen him for some of you it's been five months and three days some of it's been five weeks and three days I don't know what it is for you but he longs to be in that relationship with you and for you to have that fresh start and he went to some incredible lengths so that you could Jesus went to the cross for a very noble purpose and he stayed up there on the cross when he could have come down why did he stay up there he stayed there because he knew that only by him staying on the cross would our sins be paid for And he became a sacrifice to pay for my sins. To put it another way, he got his blood all over my stuff. All over my pride, all over my lust, all over my selfishness. And he got his blood all over your stuff too. All over your indifference and your jealousy and your anger. And He covered over all of our sins that we've committed in the past so that we could have a fresh start. You want a fresh start today with your church or with others? Well, the starting point is to have a fresh start with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we long for that fresh start that only you can give. And we know that you can make it last and that you can keep it going when we totally turn ourselves over to you. So, Father, we ask that you would make that difference in our lives and that you would help us to walk more closely with you and to return to you and to see you there with outstretched arms to welcome us. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.